trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join me for another little exercise in wrong think. And whether you're a longtime listener or just, uh, you know, freedom curious, I welcome you to the fold. I hope you find yourself in good company here. Our program brought to you by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, Pure Light, the next generation of light, as well as HSLAmmo.com. Actually going to have a chance to introduce you over the next uh, little bit to Spencer Worthington, who is the founder of HSL Ammo. Fantastic young man. Um, this guy is great in so many ways, besides the fact that he makes, you know, what uh, is is rapidly becoming one of the most precious and scarce commodities, at least uh, known to, to folks here in the U.S. Man, it's hard. To, it is hard to find ammo these days. But uh, Spencer is uh, an absolute uh, genius as far as uh, he, he makes things work. He's, he's got a very thriving business, and he is possibly one of the best ambassadors to the shooting sports, to the Second Amendment of uh, anybody that I know. Like I say, I'll be giving you a chance to meet him in person shortly. We'll do that, uh, we'll do that within the next, uh, next few days. In the meantime, welcome to this program. What is this show all about, you may be asking? It's about uh, taking a look at current events, understanding the world around us, and trying to do it through something other than the filter of red versus blue partisan politics. Now, I understand that's, that's the paradigm that most people um, have been trained to, to see the world. That's the prism through which most people see it. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's con- conservatives versus progressives, etc. No. I'd like to focus on uh, the principles that are at stake. You'll find that I have uh, distaste for both uh, the major political, uh, political sides, such as they are. But I'm a believer in uh, human rights. I'm a believer that uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are good things and that uh, proper government remains properly limited for the purpose of protecting those natural rights, not micromanaging every aspect of your life. That's actually where we're going to start today is talk about some of that micromanaging aspect of why is it so tempting to people who are in power. Now, I am a freelance worker and, you know, I've spent most of my adult life, most of my radio career and even, uh, you know, most of my writing career working for people, you know, getting this regular paycheck, you know, for for doing stuff. And I'll tell you this, doing freelance work is quite different than holding down a steady job with regular paychecks that you collect every couple of weeks or every week, as the case may be. It's it's quite different. There's uncertainty there. And it was just within the last year that I finally took that uh, that step out onto, you know, the, the path of uh, really, you know, stand on your own, be part of the gig economy, and and all the work that I do now is freelance. And I'll admit, you know, not knowing where that next check is going to come from, it does add a certain level of excitement and intensity to my life. But it also provides something that I didn't even realize 
was missing. That is a freedom and flexibility that, uh, you know, you don't even know you're on a leash until someone takes the leash off. And that's, that's kind of an interesting revelation. If you've been through it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I'll admit it's uncomfortable at first, but I would take that discomfort in exchange for the higher degree of freedom and flexibility. But this has not escaped the attention of certain politicians who only want to help you. And now the Biden administration is saying they want to decide when freelance workers are legitimate. Let's put legitimate in quotation marks. Because what's legitimate to government is just simply whatever words we put on paper, as opposed to what's right and what's wrong. Apparently, the Department of Labor, this is according to Sean Higgins, the Department of Labor announced on Thursday, March 11th, it was rescinding a rule issued by the previous administration on when workers are freelancers. But here's the kicker. It never gave any clear reason what was wrong with that rule. The Biden administration said the independent contractor final rule would have undermined worker protections, but tellingly, they could not explain how it would have done this. Wage and Hour Division Principal Deputy Administrator, wow, there's a title, Jessica Lumen said, rescinding these rules would strengthen protections for workers, including the essential frontline workers who've done so much during these challenging times. Okay, that's a nice platitude, but how did the prior administration's rule not protect workers? Jessica Lumen never says. The actual problem the administration had with the prior administration's rule is that it shifted authority away from federal regulators to the workers themselves. Ah, there we go. (laughs) So the question of when a worker is an independent contractor, a worker usually called a freelancer, is a hot-button issue. And since I have a dog in this fight, I guess I'm I'm going to beat the drum a little bit here on behalf of others in this situation. Contractors, says Sean Higgins, are not generally covered by workplace laws like National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, or the Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA. And therefore, they're exempt from things like overtime, health coverage, or minimum wage regulations. Legally speaking, they're considered to be separate businesses. Now, this is where most so-called gig economy companies like rideshare companies, Uber and Lyft, use contractors exclusively. And they do this because these contractors can work irregular hours and with little scheduling. The companies claim that flexibility is crucial. Many workers seem to agree. You know, only about a quarter of California's Uber drivers do it full time. Now, that arrangement is uh, frustrating for unions since contractors are hard to organize. The NLRA was written with traditional employees in mind and most of its provisions apply to them. Unions and their allies argue that the contractor business model exploits workers. Wow, where have we heard that before? Mr. Marks, would you like to comment? All right. Unions argued that the companies should classify workers as employees instead. In fact, California had a huge political battle over the matter last year. That was what AB5 was all about. Now, the Labor Department currently has no clear rule for when a worker is an employee. Instead, it uses six factors that indicate if a worker is an employee, but none of those indicators are definitive. So, there's confusion on the subject. Bureaucrats and courts are often forced to decide on a case-by-case basis. What the Trump administration did was they narrowed that list from six factors to two core factors. 
That would be the individual's degree or control over the work and his or her ability to make a profit or loss from it. If the workers determined when they worked and when they stopped and controlled how much money they made from working, then they were considered a contractor. Well, apparently the Biden administration Labor Department didn't like this, claiming, well, this rule would narrow or minimize other factors considered by courts traditionally, making the economic test less likely to establish that a worker is an employee under the FLSA. Now, the Department of Labor's Lumen warned when legitimate independent contractors are an important part of our, while legitimate independent contractors are an important part of our economy, the misclassification of employees as independent contractors denies workers access to critical benefits and protections the law provides. <clears throat> Note the use of the word legitimate. That's a trick word. That's a, that's a weasel word in the mouth of a politician. And this, as Sean Higgins points out here, the problem the, the Biden administration had with this rule was that it limited the department's ability to define what is and isn't legitimate. And so they're going to insinuate themselves into the lives of workers and complicate things, create more paperwork, more accountability, more taxes. This is one of the big things. And by the way, I think in the, in the latest, <clears throat> excuse me, COVID relief bill, there was a provision in there. I'll have to see if I can find the article. Uh, I know the Foundation for Economic Education had referred to this, uh, talking about how they were, were looking for new ways to tax those, uh, those gig economy workers and those freelancers. Look, I'll grant you, it's not for everybody. Not everybody wants the responsibility of going out there and having to hustle for what they do. But for some people, it's a very good thing. And I may be a little bit late in coming to the game, but I would add my voice to, to the chorus of those who say, no, this, this is what I really want to do. Like I say, I didn't even realize that, that I was trading off such a, a, a significant, noticeable amount of freedom by just taking the regular paycheck. So, food for thought. When government says, yeah, well, we just, we just want to make this, uh, you know, legitimate... What they're saying is we want to tip this in our favor, and I don't think this is any different. And it's curious to see how this is going to play out in the sense that this is going to motivate people like me who will who will not take a knee for Biden or any other administration. We will find ways to work around this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So glad you could join me today. Now, I'm, I'm going to be pushing hard on a couple of these topics just because... These are things that uh, that are unfolding under our nose, and I know there's a lot happening right now. Sometimes it's hard to keep track of everything, and so uh, this one, this one's going to probably land on a few people's toes. I'm going to take that risk. My intent is not to offend you, nor is it to convince you that you are evil or stupid. But uh, th there's there's a problem, especially when it comes to separating facts from opinions, and uh, and you know, I for a long time I actually called myself a truth seeker. 
I think it's somewhere in my bio for all the different columns I wrote for St. George News over the years. Yes, I am a truth seeker, among all the other things. And I still maintain that's, that's something that I am. But that's a very unpopular position to take. That's almost like putting a target on yourself. Reason being, there was a time when the truth was actually prized. But today, the expression of facts, not just opinions, facts that offend elitist sensibilities are being weaponized against us. What that means is facts are now considered racist. Got a great article here by Peter Kersenow from National Review who says cancellation has become so frequent that there's a tendency to note the latest example perfunctorily and move on, just hoping you're not the next victim. Man, does that ring true. Last week's termination of Professor Sandra Sellers of Georgetown Law School bears more than a perfunctory mention. In what she thought was a private conversation with a fellow faculty member after a virtual class, Sellers said after discussing the performance of a black student in her mediation class, she said, quote, You know what? I hate to say this. I end up having this angst every, se- every semester that a lot of my lower ones are blacks. It happens almost every semester. And it's like, oh, come on. You know, we get some really good ones, but there are usually some of them that are just plain at the bottom, end quote. Now, unbeknownst to the professors, that conversation was still being recorded and was uploaded along with the rest of the class into a digital database with the appropriately dystopian name Panopto, right? Referring to the Panopticon. If you don't know what the Panopticon is, please Google it. It's a, it's a type of prison in which uh, every prisoner can be observed from one central location. A few weeks later, the Georgetown Black Law Students Association became aware of the conversation and immediately began calling for Professor Sellers' head. Now, the BLSA claimed these racist statements reveal not only Sellers' beliefs about black students in her classes, but also how her racist thoughts have translated to racist actions. Professor Sellers' bias has impacted the grades of black students in her classes historically, in her own words, end quote. Now, that, to put it conservatively, is a heck of a lot to glean from Sellers' statements. Nonetheless, Georgetown fired Professor Sellers, put the other professor on leave, and engaged in the customary ritual abasement to try to get this thing to go away. Now, of course, there's one question that's almost never asked, at least publicly, after one of these incidents. What if the statement accurately describes relative black student performance? Universities and law schools guard information about the comparative qualifications of admittees from different racial groups more tenaciously than the military guards nuclear launch codes. Absent state disclosure laws for public universities or legal action, not one college will release this information. We can, however, get a fair idea of whether there are appreciable differences in academic qualifications among different racial groups by looking at historical information about Georgetown's practices as well as those of other schools. Althea Nagai of the Center for Equal Opportunity has spent years studying racial disparities in undergraduate and law school admissions. She studied law school admissions at the University of Oklahoma, University of Wisconsin, University of Nebraska, University of Utah, University of Arizona, Arizona State University, and University of Michigan. Every single one of these law schools admitted black applicants who were significantly less academic qualified than white applicants. This is what Dr. Nagai found, quote, In all 15 cases, the median LSATs of white admittees were greater than the medians of black admittees. 
The largest differences were found at Nebraska in 2006. That was a 12-point difference. Wisconsin in 2006, 11 points, and Nebraska in 2007, 10 points. Smallest gap in the median LSAT scores between white and black admittees was at Arizona State in 2007. That was just a five-point difference. But she says in all 15 cases, the college GPAs of white admittees were greater than those of black admittees. Here, too, the largest black-white difference was found at Nebraska, a point zero, I'm sorry, a 0.6 point difference, followed by Arizona and Arizona State with 0.5 of a point. The smallest difference was at Arizona in 2005. That one was a 0.1 point difference. So the author of the article here says there's no reason to think that Georgetown law is immune from racial preferences to black applicants. For one thing, we know they were giving preferences to black students as far back as the late 1980s. He says, as my colleague Gail Harriet accounts, recounts rather in her upcoming book, A Dubious Expediency, a Georgetown law student working in the admissions office found evidence in 1991 that there were stark disparities in the academic credentials of admitted black and white students, and no, the white students weren't the ones getting preference. Then, as now, a firestorm erupted at the school and spread to the nation's elite media institutions when the evidence was disclosed. Some truths are just too inconvenient to acknowledge. So why do racial preferences in admission matter to the case of Professor Sellers? And it's simply because if a student is admitted with lower academic qualifications than his classmates, he's likely to continue to perform at a lower level than his classmates in law school. Students rarely catch up to their better prepared classmates. Rather, as Rick Sander and Stuart Taylor detail in their book, Mismatch, these students are likely to fall further behind. And when members of one racial group are mostly admitted with a racial preference, they start out in the lower part of the class and they're likely to stay there. The circumstances then used, that circumstance rather, is then used as evidence of systemic racism, justifying even more preferences, and the cycle repeats. So the point here is simply increasingly the expression of facts, not just opinions, that offend elite, elite sensibilities are being weaponized against us. And that means truth is no longer a defense. Now, I don't share this with you with the idea of, therefore, let's get out there and let's argue this with everybody, you know, in every way possible. But I think what Peter Kersenow is, is pointing out is we are approaching a point in time where the goalposts are being moved so much and so often. Truth is, uh, how can I put this? It's a moving target, to put it mildly. And heaven help you. If you speak a truth that is considered inconvenient or is considered, you know, offensive to someone, which, by the way, that's a subjective call. And it's not just, you know, over, you know, the, the, the racism question. Well, are there these black students being treated different or are they performing differently in this case? It's not that they're being treated differently as much as when, when it comes times for, time for grades, the performance is showing a certain trend, at least with some of those students. But you can't say that. You cannot. This, I guess this is, the, this is the point. I'll just get cut right to the chase. Idolatry is whatever 
you value so much that you put it above reality itself. In other words, something that is so sacrosanct, you may not question it. And that's pretty much what we're being told by these activists who, you know, again, feigning racial outrage. They're arguing with facts. They're not just arguing with opinions. They're, they're arguing with empirical evidence, which was never intended to prove, well, this proves once and for all that uh, this race is better than that race. That's not at all what it was proving. All it was doing was giving us a picture that underqualified students may be underperforming. What a crazy world. All I can tell you is if you are a truth teller or a truth seeker, you've got your work cut out for you. It's not getting easier. But the world still needs you to shine that light into the darkness wherever it's necessary. So take heart. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I hope this experience in wrong think is going well for you. I understand discomfort may be a part of engaging in wrong think. And my goal is never to, to convince you that I have all the answers or that I am right about whatever it is I happen to be sharing. I'm not even going to try and convince you that the authors that I share with you and the commentators are, are necessarily right. I am going to uh, strongly insinuate, though, there might be another way of looking at a particular issue. And that's why I share these, these stories, not so much for their potential to outrage, but for their potential to enlarge a person's understanding. What you decide to believe, that's still up to you. I wouldn't presume to take that from you. But sometimes you got to bump up against the limits of your mental universe. And I understand, for some people, that's an uncomfortable exercise. So let's boldly move forward. If you're someone who values the truth over political dogma, one of the best things you can do is to teach your kids and your grandkids how to distinguish between the two. I love Annie Holmquist's writing on intellectualtakeout.org. Strongly recommend that you make that a part of your daily quest for what's happening in the world, just because you'll find a lot of great commentary on a lot of different subjects steeped in classical liberal arts education, in other words, with a well-rounded historical view of not just the history, but the philosophies that are at play. And Annie is a marvelous writer, as well as the editor of Intellectual Takeout. Her article is called How to Tell the Difference Between Real Education and Propaganda. She says, The other day I ran across a passage from That Hideous Strength, which seems oddly applicable to our time. A dystopian novel written by C.S. Lewis at the close of World War II, that hideous strength finds one of its main characters, Mark Studdock, working for NICE, an organization which pulls the strings in a controlling, totalitarian society. Studdock is assigned to write propaganda articles for NICE, an assignment which he objects to when he receives it from his boss, Miss Hardcastle. Studuk argues that it won't work because papers are, newspapers are read by educated people, too smart to be taken in by propaganda. And the story continues, quote, That shows you're still in the nursery, lovey, said Miss Hardcastle. Haven't you yet realized it's the other way around? How do you mean? Why, you fool. 
It's the educated reader who can be gold. All our difficulty comes with the others. When did you meet a workman who believes the papers? He takes it for granted they're all propaganda and skips the leading articles. He buys his paper for the football results and the little paragraphs about girls falling out of windows and corpses found in Mayfair flats. He is our problem. We have to recondition him. But the educated public, the people who read the highbrow weeklies, they don't need reconditioning. They're all right already. They'll believe anything. End quote. Annie Holmquist says, reading this, I couldn't help but wonder how much of the American people, or how much of the American public, rather, thinks like Studdock. We are convinced that education is the panacea for all ills, and if the masses could simply achieve one more grade level or degree, we wouldn't have so many problems to sort through. But what if that education is, as Miss Hardcastle implies in the passage above, the very thing blinding the eyes of the general public? Or perhaps we should say what we call education. You see, there's a difference between what we call education and what actually comprises true education. That which we call education is most often found in institutional schooling, the great halls of learning known as public and sometimes private elementary, middle, and high schools, as well as many of the sacred institutions of higher education. We often send our children to these institutions, intending the best for them, hoping they come out on the other side as wise, truth-discerning adults. Unfortunately, they all too often come out propagandized instead. Richard Weaver describes this situation well in his 1955 essay, Propaganda. He noted, It is of primary importance to distinguish propaganda from education. These two are confused in the minds of many people because both are concerned with communication. Education imparts information and also seeks to inculcate attitudes. Propaganda frequently contains information, and it is always interested in affecting attitudes. A good part of modern propaganda, furthermore, tries to parade as education. The critical difference appears only when one considers the object of each. Now, Annie Holmquist asks, how then does one avoid this pseudo-educational propaganda? And Weaver again supplies an answer. Quote, the true educator is endeavoring to shape his audience for the audience's own good, according to the fullest enlightenment available. In doing so, he erects and strives to follow a standard of objective truth. The propagandist, on the contrary, is trying to shape his audience according to the propagandist's interest, whether that be economic, political, social, or personal. End quote. Now, there's been much talk in the last year about the success of education at home, Many of the children learning at home through virtual schooling while under a parent's supervision are still receiving their education from the system. And this system contains some good educators who genuinely want the best for their students, but it also contains many bad ones who've climbed onto the bandwagon of the education system and are ready to advance its woke agenda. By contrast, consider true homeschools, where the parents have taken all responsibility for their child's education upon themselves. Some may say this is the true source of propagandist education. But consider that thought in light of Weaver's words about the true educator trying to shape his audience for the audience's own good. Which educator is more likely to seek a child's good? More often than not, such educators will be that child's parents. She says, We increasingly live in a world where big tech, politicians, and so-called experts tell us what we should do and why when it comes to COVID, the vaccine, elections, and many other topics. Like those at NICE, 
they are not they are likely not worried about convincing the educated among us rather they are likely more worried about the truly educated those they frame as workmen those who may not have elite jobs or have gone to elite schools but who've been trained by those who truly care about them and want them to know and follow the truth in this latter camp she says that's, it's, it is this latter camp, rather, that we should strive to get our children into. And it doesn't matter if they have prestigious jobs or run with the elite. What matters is whether their eyes are able to discern propaganda parading itself as education. Teach your children to know and love truth, she says. Your children will thank you, and so will your countrymen. That is a powerful call to action. And it reminds me of a, a meme that I saw within the last day or two. I'm going to try and do this as best as I can from memory. And it essentially says, the reason most people don't realize that they've been conditioned, brainwashed, and manipulated is because they've been conditioned, brainwashed, and manipulated. Think about that. By the way, that applies to all of us. That applies to me as well. Every one of us has spent a fair amount of our lives in the swamp of misinformation. And trying to slog your way out of that swamp is not an easy task. But for a lot of us, there comes a point where we realize what I'm being told does not jive with reality, or at least it's, it's not complete. <clears throat> That's what sets me off on my quest to find out more, to get a more well-rounded picture. And I'm not always right. But I certainly like to, to see what else am I not being told. I think this is the essence of being a truth seeker. Is <clears throat> It's not so much, you know, well, how many facts can I recite off the, off the top of my head? It's more a matter of how can I better understand the situation and what kind of questions will help me obtain the information that maybe isn't being voluntarily uh, put before me. Plus, when you consider that so many of our mass media sources have kind of morphed into a fear delivery system, the idea was never to in inform us. It was to keep us, you know, on the edge of panic or stampeding in this direction or that direction or to tell us this is what you're supposed to believe. This is what you're supposed to feel. I submit to you that you are more than capable of thinking like an expert. You are more than capable of making these decisions for yourself. And though you and I, by virtue of the fact that you're listening to this program, are probably a little longer in the tooth than, than the kids, one of the greatest things that you can do, one of, the, one of the best things that you can do, not just for yourself, but for society in general, is to plant those trees now. You've heard the saying, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago. Now's the time to be planting trees by helping these young people discern the difference between propaganda, parading itself as education. So I echo Annie Holmquist's call. Teach your children to know and love the truth. It's best if you can do this by the power of example. Always easier to ask people you know, to do things that you've actually done yourself. So if you need to shore up your thinking abilities, if you need to become a more clear and independent thinker, there's no shame in that. Nobody's going to look down. At least nobody in their right mind would look down on you. Ha, you didn't know it all already? Again, we're all slogging our way out of that swamp, right? Let's make sure we're leaving a clear trail for the people behind us.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back to the show. All right, I got two more things I want to share with you in this hour. And uh, both of them are pretty controversial. I guess I should just warn you about that up front. Uh, Let's start with uh, the trial of the police officer accused of murdering George Floyd, getting ready to uh, start in uh, Minneapolis. Man, they have had a tough time seating jurors. Can you blame them, though? I mean, how would you like to be a juror at this trial knowing that the, the mob outside, which it's a growing mob and it's a mob that is threatening violence, they've already decided what the verdict has to be. What if you were a juror and it only takes one to say, I'm sorry, but this does not convince me beyond a reasonable doubt that this police officer is guilty of what he's being charged with. Just takes one. Hung jury, mistrial, they got to decide, do we try him all over again? You know, I, I don't know. There's a lot of evidence that has come out since George Floyd's death, but the, the popular narrative is, well, Derek Chauvin, the officer who was pictured kneeling on uh, on George Floyd as they were trying to control him, you know, just killed him, cold-blooded and, and just heartless by kneeling on his neck. But there's more to this, and I'm going to share with you a couple of thoughts here from uh, Pat Buchanan, who asks, who and what killed George Floyd? He said, Friday, as the jury was being impaneled for the trial of fired police officer Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis City Council voted 13 to nothing to approve a record $27 million civil settlement with the family of George Floyd over his death in police custody. Interesting timing, right? Now, the jury's not likely to miss this message sent by the city fathers, i.e., an atrocity was perpetrated by our police and we are admitting our responsibility and doing our duty by offering these reparations for Floyd's cruel and unjustified death and the suffering visited on his family. Now, most Americans who saw the nine-minute tape of Chauvin with his knee on the neck of George Floyd as he pleaded, I can't breathe, will probably concur with the charge of criminal culpability of Chauvin. Yet over the months, new facts and factors have emerged. And this is important stuff, and this is what the jury is going to be hearing. This is why, you know, they, they will hear the facts. Among those facts... George Floyd was not choked to death. He was not asphyxiated. He was not killed by Chauvin's knee on the side of his neck. An autopsy showed Floyd's neck muscles were not even bruised. George Floyd died when his heart stopped. Yet he was already suffering from an enlarged heart with constricted arteries, one of five of of which was 90% blocked, two others were 75% blocked. An autopsy also found heavy concentrations of fentanyl in George's system and traces of methamphetamines. If Floyd had collapsed and died in the street while being arrested into a squad car, his death would have been attributed to a drug overdose and a bad heart. Also, a videotape of the minutes prior to Floyd's being put on the pavement, his neck under Chauvin's, Chauvin's knee, shows Floyd crying repeatedly, I can't breathe while resisting the two cops, the two rookies, trying to put him in the patrol car. Moreover, there is testimony from those with Floyd that when he he was stopped for passing an allegedly $20 bill, that he had passed out in the car before the cops arrived. And the arresting cops claim he was foaming at the mouth before being restrained. In short, Chauvin's defense attorneys will likely make a credible case backed by evidence that Floyd's death was not caused by the knee on his neck 
or by, but by the battered condition of his heart. The near-lethal dose, dose of fentanyl in his system, his anxiety and panic at being arrested and fearing as he wailed that he was going to be shot. The prosecution will counterclaim that Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck and the other two cops sitting on him precipitated the stopping of his heart. But the prosecution faces other questions. How could Chauvin, who arrived late to the scene, know Floyd was a drug addict with a serious heart condition and a large amount of fentanyl in his system before using the restraint technique of sitting on him and putting a knee on the side of his neck? What was Chauvin trying to do when he arrived to see two rookie cops trying to cope with a powerfully built 6-foot-4-inch, 220-pound man violently resisting arrest? Did Chauvin put his knee on Floyd's neck to kill him, to torture or injure him, or did he use the technique to restrain him? Prosecutors will contend the knee on the neck was criminal assault, a felony that caused Floyd to black out and his heart to stop. But that raises another question. Is placing a knee on the side of the neck an outlawed or prohibited procedure for police to use to restrain a, a suspect violently resisting arrest, as a chokehold is in some precincts? Or is it a procedure some police use legally at times? Chauvin was clearly familiar with the technique. Had he used it before without injury to a suspect? Buchanan says in a motion to dismiss the charges he himself faces in the death of Floyd, former police officer Thomas Lane included 30 pages of Minneapolis PD training materials, including information on the maximal restraint technique. Lane included a photo of an officer with a knee on a suspect's neck, similar to the hold used by Chauvin. In preparing for the trial of Chauvin, Minneapolis is fortified with concrete barriers, fences, and razor wires, the courthouse where it will be held. Understandably, for any acquittal of Chauvin or conviction on a lesser charge than murder, it could trigger a riot like those that plagued the city through the summer of 2020. And if a mob does take to the streets in Minneapolis, as it did last summer, the national reaction will be telling. Pat Buchanan asks, how does one accurately describe a crowd that gathers outside a courthouse to demand on the threat of a riot a verdict of guilty? And should a riot occur? And violent protests in Louisville, Seattle, and Portland over the weekend seem to point to another such long, hot summer. May we expect our new national leaders, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer, to denounce the mob and stand up unequivocally for the rule of law? I guess I'll just let that stand without comment. There is a link to the article in the show notes. Consider checking it out. Now, I'm going to shift to another one. I don't know if you even know the name Ross Ulbricht. Most people don't know who he is. Most people don't know why he's languishing in prison. But Ross Ulbricht is not the monster that his prosecutors have made him out to be. This is the guy who invented the Silk Road website. And I have an explanation here from Paul Rosenberg, which I think is, is worth considering. Because he says, you know, when I say Ross Ulbricht's world, and this, this is titled, I want to live in Ross Ulbricht's world. He says, I'm not referring to his present circumstances, of course. He's presently in a prison cell. What I'm talking about is the better world that he was building before the U.S. government came crashing down upon him. That's the world I want to live in. The Silk Road website that Ross created was never a business. It was a mission. And that mission was to create a better world. Now, even its immediate mission, which was to break the war on drugs was only a first step towards something more. So he says, before I explain the world he was trying to create, I'd like you to see one of Ross's posts on the Silk Road forum to make this initial point. Ross said, quote, If prohibition is lifted, where will you be? 
Will you forget about all this revolution stuff? Will you go back to ignoring that itching feeling that something isn't right? That men in uniforms and behind desks have just a bit too much control over your life and are taking more and more of your sovereignty every day? Will you go back to thinking that taxes are in as, as inevitable as death and the best you can do is to pull as hard as you can for them until your mind, body, and spirit are all used up? He says, I know where I'll be. I won't rest until children are born into a world where oppression, institutional violence, and control, world war, and all the other hallmarks of the state are as ancient history as Pharaoh's commanding armies of slaves. The drug war merely brings to light their nature and shows us who they really are. That's a pretty powerful statement. And I understand it's going to rub some people the wrong way. But as Paul Rosenberg says, Ross Ulbricht's world was one of voluntary interactions. And we accept that model in our families and personal interactions. Ross wanted to, it to replace violence as the world's overarching model of cooperation. What Ross understood, but few others do, is this. We hold to the golden rule as a standard of conduct for ourselves, but we toss it away for everything outside our small circle. Here's another uh, quote from Ross. He says, for years, this is describing his awakening. He says, for years I was frustrated and defeated by what seemed to be the insurmountable barriers between the world today and the world I wanted. But eventually I found something that made sense, was simple and consistent, elegant, the Austrian economic theory. I saw the magical and powerful wealth-creating effect of the market, the way it fostered cooperation, civility, and tolerance, how it made trading partners out of strangers or even enemies how it coordinates the actions of every person on the planet in ways too complex for any one mind to fathom to produce an overflowing abundance of wealth. Bottom line here is, Ross Ulbricht is a very gifted man, and he was offering the world a solid intellectual path from the the world of do as we say or we'll hurt you to a world of the golden rule writ large. That's what drove him to build the Silk Road. Now, unfortunately for all all of us, the new world Russ was building made the U.S. government look ridiculous. And soon enough, they locked him in a cage, and they intend on keeping him there for the rest of his life. Paul Rosenberg says, look, those of us who can need to help Ross, but even more importantly, we must never cease building the better world he devoted his gifts to. Pretty fascinating stuff. I've had the chance to interview Ross's mother. I'm absolutely unconvinced that he's the monster that the government made him out to be. Makes you wonder how many other people may be in that circumstance as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.